You're listening to Dirty Feet, a dance podcast. I'm Alison Elizabeth Burns. On this episode of the Dirty Feet Dance Podcast, we're going to be getting a little personal as we're going into my own work through the the lens of my relationship with playwright Lori Fife. Lori, thank you for joining me today. Delighted to be here. Lori is an Ottawa-based playwright, uh, and we have worked together on a few projects together now where she's invited me to come in and uh, lend my movement artistry to her productions. Um, the work that Lori does is very well researched. It's very creative. Um, I find it quite... Um, yeah, informed and also uh, impactful. There's usually a very um, interesting and important message or uh, seed of the project that that goes on and lends itself to a larger conversation, uh, which makes the work really interesting to be on the inside of as well as on the outside of. Uh, and this project in particular we're talking about today is called Exciting Cause, which is a production that we started working on together in 2020. I'm sure, Lori, you started before then, but that's when I was introduced into the project. And uh, we've been working on it in various workshop settings uh, since then, and we'll be uh, bringing it to stage in the spring of 2023. Also in the new year, in, in January of 2023, we're going to be doing uh, uh, leading a workshop associated with the production and this idea of movement for theater and the creation of. Let's back up for a tick, and I'm going to ask you, Lori, to give yourself uh, an introduction and tell us a bit more about where you're coming from when you write plays. A lot of my plays um, address women in history. I feel there are a lot of untold stories still uh, that feed into a sort of narrative that I don't think we're fully informed about or aware of with respect to the role of women. And I find the 19th century particularly fascinating. What led to exciting cause, which is, by the way, the diagnosis of madness, what excited or prompted a woman's uh, acts of insanity. What led to that play was my discovery that my great-great-grandmothers, Sarah and Gerard, died in 1901 in the Rockwood Asylum for the Insane at Kingston, Ontario. So, you can't help but be very curious when you find out that a long-distant relative the pictures of whom remaining look very prim and proper, and you know she was religious, uh, died under such circumstances. What could she possibly have done? What happened? 
I was fortunate enough to have a little bit of genealogy to also research, so I was able to find out things about Sarah, when she came to Canada, when she married, how many children she had, and the curious fact that she left her husband and then moved to north of Peterborough in Shandos County to take possession of freehold land, which just by definition, is usually land that nobody wants to buy, and that's why it's freehold land for sale, and then raised her four children there by herself. Then there's a huge gap in her history until I discovered her in the case history files of the Rockwood Asylum. So I had a a very intriguing mystery to unravel, which then, of course, led me to all the other case history files of women in the Rockwood Asylum. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in because clearly we're talking about exciting cause today, but I want to zoom out uh, for a minute and talk about kind of your work in a, in a broader sense. So I'm thinking of Beowulf in Afghanistan, Tales from the Book of Swords, um, Safe as Houses. yes. Can you tell me what these all have in common for you? What they all have in common um, is some sort of seed of exploration, an unanswered question. In Beowulf in Afghanistan, I was intrigued by the issue of courage and why young men and women, would choose to go into the military. The campaign of Canadians in Afghanistan was long enough for people to know that if they signed up for the military, they would, without question, end up in a war zone, which was unusual. It was Canada's first wartime mission since Korea. That's a big gap. And... um, I was just so intrigued by that. But of course, what started me there was this ancient tale of Beowulf and this wondrous Anglo-Saxon Old English language, which I've uh, become more and more intrigued by as I worked on the play. Safe as Houses was about the housing crisis and how we have traditionally looked at the whole idea of home, what home means to people, and how it's it's not just an investment opportunity. Home is so important. We, we all want homes. We need homes. We need to feel that safety. And how that is becoming more elusive. So what is the future of home? Um, and what was the other one you mentioned? Because I'm drifting Tales here. Tales from the Book of Swords. Oh, yes. Well, Tale from the Book of Swords, good heavens. Uh, I, spent, <laughs> I spent time in my early acting career as a belly dancer. And uh, dancing in Turkish restaurants, dancing in Greek restaurants. This was when I lived in Vancouver. It was such a big wave of belly dancing at the time that, again... I wanted to go back in history and explore where it came from, the mythology of the dance, the stories connected to it, and right back to the Bible and the story of Salome and her dance of the seven veils, and then right up to modern belly dancers um, dancing for a living in the 
Greek restaurant around the corner. I'm so glad that belly dance has already come up in our conversation. So yes, of course, this this is uh, beginning to show us the link between between our two art forms here where you um, have this kind of this body awareness and this body expression in your practice. Now you 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 came to me with tale from the book of swords and and asked for my contribution choreographically, we did a we ended up doing like a structured improvisation with the cast um, to kind of uh, segue between the tales to do a little uh, in dance interpretation of of what was maybe underlying in each of the stories. So, can you tell me why you um, invited a contemporary dance artist into this process? Yeah. Being me, <laughs> absolutely. Um, what I was interested in exploring was not just the belly dance that you see when you go to a restaurant, the shimmies and the shakes and all of these specific choreographed routines that are very much a part of the dance. But I was interested in exploring the dance with the idea of the stories, the text I had written. And I thought, I'm, I'm looking for more interpretation. I'm looking for a contemporary choreographer who experiments with dance so that it's not just a question of, oh, this is what the dancers should do. The dancers should be free to explore the imaginative space of belly dancing stories. And some of the characters like Salome, um, abandoned and alone in the desert and her dance being one of ritual and survival. And the various stories um, in which we also see kind of a reversal of the um, the myth of discovery that the husband you're married to is a monster. No, in this story, the woman discovers the monster within herself. And that came out in the dance. And that was wonderful. It was this great moment when the dancer was towering over the other <laughs> dancers and they were sort of cowering under this monstrous sense that um, sort of the theme of the story was coming out. Not just this idea that we're all belly dancers, but this idea that we are embodying the various journeys from the different stories. That was what I found was exciting. And that was what was so great to see you bring out Allison with the dancers as they improvised. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so this again feels like a really nice segue now to come back to exciting cause because not all of your work includes includes dance, yeah. um, but some of your work does. And so you know this. What is it about now that we understand a bit of the theme be- behind exciting cause, a bit of the inspiration for your work in general? What is it that? that begs for movement in this production. We talked about, um, you know, you and I, when we were having the conversation about movement in the play. And for me, it was the internal world that each of these women in their so-called madness or mental illness were experiencing and also the stories they were trying to tell. We talked a lot about what the case history files implied but didn't say. 
And for me, that was the key. What is going on in the mind of these women? And if they could express themselves freely in their bodies, what would we see? Because we also had this conversation about how as Victorian women, and this period that I'm looking at runs up until 1901 for about 20 years prior in the case history files, there is such an emphasis on the correct way to behave, the proper way to behave as a woman. And you don't have to step too far beyond those boundaries to find yourself at odds with the social construct of the time. And so when we came across women expressing what seemed like odd or strange behaviors, we thought, well, is this a code? Is there something else going on here? And we assumed there was. So for me, it's kind of freeing the characters to enact the kind of physical dream space that we believe many of these women inhabited. So it's another dimension of the story. Yes, we have the case history files. Yes, we have the stories of what happened to these women to a point. But there's this whole other realm of what it's like to be inside a mental institution in the 19th century to be exhibiting signs and symptoms that are mysteries to the doctors and exploring what could possibly be this other means of communication through the physical that I think these women are going through. There is so much filling in the gaps that that needs to happen in, yeah. in the creation of this play, isn't there? Because yet, as you said, you're working from real case files. Um, you you go there and you 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 go to the archives and you and you get it straight from the horse's mouth yeah. <laughs> in their handwriting. Uh, sometimes legible, sometimes not. So, how much of this piece of writing would you say is? Uh, invented and how much is true to to history? Well, the case history files are all based on real women, and I'm using um, real women. Part of the reason for that is that I, I envision a moment at the end of the play where we acknowledge the real women and declare, for the sake of history, you were not mad. Uh, because I feel that there is even something in many of the doctor's files that indicate it really wasn't a case of madness. In some cases, Rockwood was a sanctuary. Um, in particular, I'll refer to um, a sequence we had a lot of fun with, and this is the woman with 10 children. And we've come up with the idea of representing those 10 children by chairs, which has led to some really fun choreography of the, the actor playing the woman being cornered, being chased, finally being, uh, you know, she ends up on the ground and the chairs are literally trapping her. She can't move. So you have all these little marching chairs, which symbolize the children. Yeah, I but, have to interject that they are little chairs. They're yeah, like they are little chairs. chairs. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're tiny chairs. And I have a little stool and I also have a little rocking chair. And um, this is a challenge getting all these chairs. But <laughs> what is what is fascinating in this is this idea that when she was first admitted to Rockwood, the diagnosis of her so-called insanity was malnutrition and exhaustion. And the cure 
was rest and a good diet, after which she was released from Rockwood. And one can't help but question, well, obviously, the doctors are not saying she was insane. They're admitting, in effect, that what really was the problem was just overwork, being overwhelmed, and completely at her wit's end with all these children and living in a, on a farm in isolation um, with very little help. So I, I found myself realizing that there were a number of cases like that. Nobody's out of their mind here. They may be at their mm-hmm. wit's end, but they're not out of their minds. Mm-hmm. More more the, the structure of the society, yeah. and especially in this play, how it relates to, to women yeah. and how it oppresses women. That's what's coming out. There was no other place for her to go or for her to be sent. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be another theme is is what happens to these women is very seldom their choice. Yeah. Well, when you were incarcerated at Rockwood, if two doctors agreed that you were insane, then you were a patient of the asylum. You did not have the right to leave. Uh, a male relative or the doctors had to appeal for your release. Um, you did lose your freedom. You were, um, in a sense, a prisoner of the asylum. That's how the law worked at the time. So even if they admitted a woman knowing that she wasn't insane and she was of no risk to herself or society, um, she had to have permission from the doctors before she could leave. So she was denied her freedom. Perhaps this would be a good moment for us to flip the conversation and I will uh, allow you, Laurie, to take on the interviewer role and I will uh, fulfill my role as the uh, choreographer on this project and uh, fill you in on my perspective. (laughs) All right. So what I would begin by asking you, Alison, is what did you find interesting about working with a script as the guide for your or inspiration launching point for choreography? What was different or interesting for that in your process? I love working with, um, I'm going to say a seed or something um, to start with. Sometimes it's intimidating just to just to go off nothing, you know, or start from the movement, start from the body, which is can be a very fulfilling process, certainly. Um, but there is there is something re- relieving about working from a source material. I find, you know, that adage of within confines, you find that creativity. So having guidelines, having this inspiration already set up is is really wonderful. And I find this material quite inspiring. Um, again, that just that idea of these women being being confined by these societal norms and this idea that you need to be quiet, you need to be still, you need to be small, and that that equates with health. And learning so much at the, at the time when, when you invited me into this process, Lori, I was reading for the first time, The Body Keeps the Score, which again, you know, talks about movement as healing and and as a way out of trauma. And so finding the opposition there and, oh, no, health means being in motion. Health means being able to express yourself, being able to go through to the end of the fight or flight pattern, you know, like how dogs shake 
after an interaction or an altercation with another dog, they shake it off, they they move on with their day. And we don't we don't ever do that. We just hold and we hold and we hold. And that seems like what this play was about was about that holding and holding on to it. And if you express anything outside of that, if you try and shake it off, you if you try and relieve yourself physically of whatever is was on your emotional and mental load, then that is a sign of insanity. So I found that a really interesting place to start talking and thinking about movement in the play of in, in the context of this play. And talking about these specific case files and these specific symptoms and life experiences of these women, of course, is is just rich with with inspiration for how to approach movement. Um, and I have to say something that is particularly interesting about working with a script in this process is the fact that it's still being molded. Mm-hmm. So in the first creative process, when you brought us um, a, the script in, in progress, and we started working together, and you began to adjust the text based on the propositions I was making for movement and the things we were exploring together in the workshop. And that is just a real treat to be able to have an effect on your script and on your dialogue and about the sequence of events and to be able to, to participate in building this thing chronologically and to have an impact on what is being emphasized and what is being de-emphasized. And it feels really organic and really like the movement of the work is being treated with a lot of care and attention. And I really appreciate that process. So thank you. (laughs) Well, for me, that was a real... That was an important moment to realize that it is kind of a two-way thing that um, choreography is not a decoration. Choreography yeah. is, as you say, something you can use organically, and it's going to impact a script in progress. And I think some of our most exciting movement and text sequences are the result of that meshing, that mm-hmm. linking of the two art forms. Um, yeah, I I just wanted to to add to that just that idea of um, yeah, it's not a reiteration. Yeah, um, we're not telling the same story with two different mediums. We are, and and what you said much earlier about the inner world of these women, and and that I is really top of mind when we're exploring movement. Right? It's like what what is being said outside of the dialogue, outside of the scenery and the the blocking or whatever the the performances there's there's more being said with the movement it's not a reiteration of what's being said with the voices and it influences how the set is going to be designed because we don't have a lot of stuff on stage (laughs) obviously Mm -hmm. because we're moving and it's influencing some of the surprise aesthetics that will be introduced and the lighting, <laughs> which is very key because, of course, lighting is important to dance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I would ask you, is there a scene that stands out in your mind that you're eager to work on 
again as we get into rehearsals? I know there's a number, but mm-hmm. are you finding yourself thinking more about one particular piece of choreography that we discussed or we worked on in the workshop and you're anxious to get back to? Hmm. Interesting question. I'm I'm going through the roster in, in my in my mind and they all have um uh their their attraction or their their points of interest for me. I think I think what's interesting is there's kind of a dial or a couple of dials of of like how theatrical our movement is yeah. versus more abstract and then how it aligns with the text. Some some sequences are being performed while dialogue is happening. Mm-hmm. Some are independent, some are with music. Um, so there's a lot of variation in the kinds of movement and dance sequences there are in the, in the work. Mm-hmm. I think there's something really interesting that we are still exploring that has to do with gestures that are mm-hmm. really heavily linked with the dialogue. Um, and then having that happen in tandem, but then also calling back those gestures in a moment of pure movement and having that kind of speak for itself once we've removed the words. And I'm very curious to see how we can like further hone that and what kind of impression that can leave on an audience. And I think what intrigues me about that is that I don't know yet. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think I think there's a lot of other sequences where I know their efficacy, I know their impact. Yeah. Um and that we're doing like a really clear job of that and I think this is this is one where it's a proposition that I'm I'm not sure about yet. <laughs> yeah. No, and and that's very exciting. Uh Yeah. There's it's actually quite wonderful to go into rehearsal. And of course, these rehearsals are going to be kind of spread out over an extended period um, because we're working in, sort of under a collective contract. Um, what you don't know and still have yet to discover about a new piece of theater and dance is really what is very exciting. Mm-hmm. And when mm-hmm. you, when the, the minute you said that, I thought, oh, Okay, yes, you're introducing the audience to a kind of coded gesture, physical mm-hmm. language that gets repeated, sometimes with dialogue, but but if you repeated it in sequence without the dialogue, would the audience comprehend where the story is now taking them? Which mm-hmm. is which is fascinating. And then of course, I mean we've got scenes in water, we've got scenes in dreams, we've got mm-hmm. the ten chairs I mentioned, and we've also got uh the lunatic's ball. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which yes. which I think is much fun yet to discover <laughs> how how wild can that be. Mm-hmm. And then of course, you know, Hattie and Ellen Brown and their kind of they're, oh yes! Again, really, really clearly diving into inner worlds of of you know having experienced a, a horrendous brain operation, yeah. and having attempted suicide, and these these moments that are that we just yeah we need to just remove yeah remove the story in its kind of literal sense and just let this kind of abstract inner world. These, yeah, these inner worlds that will evolve. Um, there's there's a reason it's a bit of a ghost story. There are mm-hmm. some scary moments. 
Um, but they all happened, especially the operation on Ellen Brown mm -hmm. was a real thing. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And uh, that's that also is a is an area that uh, has opened up some really creative avenues of exploration. Earlier, you mentioned the word fun when you were describing the the dance of the ten chairs or the ten children, and uh, and it is it is like that's <laughs> I'm seeing us get into details, and it is a heavy subject matter. It is a heavy play, but there is definitely definitely levity to it and, absolutely and you've done a really nice job especially in this like second creative process of like balancing it, um, it yeah. <laughs> where i'm always thinking about that because you don't want to get too heavy um this all happened a very long time ago mm -hmm. and there are mo moments when and i think this is you know there's female humor there's moments when women introduce levity deliberately to their lives to as a coping mechanism. And that story too comes out in the case history files, mm -hmm. which is wonderful. Let's mention the workshop coming up, just in case anybody is listening to this and thinking, I want to be a part of this, I want to get inside this. Uh, I will be facilitating a workshop coming up shortly. And we're going to be kind of leading the participants um, through this kind of exploration of movement in a theatrical setting. Um, Laurie, do you want to uh, give us a description? So, moving through theatrical space is a performance workshop for dancers and actors who love to move and a workshop that explores the tools and techniques you can use to tell a story through movement. Allison is going to lead this workshop, facilitate it, and it's for anyone who wants to explore movement as a way of energizing and illuminating the possibilities of storytelling through the language of the body. So the workshop will focus on developing a physical vocabulary using choreography designed to tap into the body or the bodies, express and to express emotion to energize the narrative of your work and uncover what may be the undiscovered mysteries of your story. So to participate in the workshop, all you need is a story or a project you're working on, and you're looking for a little inspiration and some new tools. Or you may wish to explore the building blocks of movement-based storytelling through stories that can be suggested by the workshop leader. So we're running the workshop for five-hour sessions on Saturday, January 21st and Saturday, January 28th. So it'll give people some time in between to do a little homework or come in with something prepared. We do need a minimum of six participants, um, and we are going to cap participation at 14. So more information coming about that, you can email Laurie at lfplaywright at gmail.com. And I'll send you more information about it. So that's lfplaywright at gmail.com. Thanks, Laurie. While you're on a roll, can you also pitch uh, the production Exciting Cause <laughs> if people want to come see it in the spring? Okay, well, Exciting Cause will open at the Arts Court Theatre on Friday, April 21st. 
This is a co-production with Tactics. Uh, they're running their regular spring festival of three plays, and Exciting Cause is the second. So it opens on Friday, April 21st, and it closes on May 5th, uh, which is also a Friday. So we have two weeks in there uh, in Arts Court Theatre, uh, most performances at 8 p.m. There will be some matinees, and uh, yeah. You can, uh, you'll be able to book tickets through the Arts Court Theater box office and tactics. Um, so that's, that's your April. <laughs> uh, obviously, Lori Fife is the playwright and myself, Alison Elizabeth Burns. I'm the choreographer. Lori, can you tell us the other credits that we should take note of? Our exciting cause. Uh, creative team, aside from myself as playwright and Allison as choreographer, we have Patrick Gauthier, who is our director, Quinn Melanchuk, our stage manager. Our actors are Maurice Fernandez, Jackie Dutoy, Chelsea Passmore, and our costume designer is Hannah Ferguson. Lighting design will be by Emilio Sebastio, and sound design by Nick DiGetano. Wonderful. Thank you for going through those <laughs> logistics okay. with me. I think they, I think we've got it all covered now. But if you're still with us, thanks for listening. Um, and thank you, Lori, for joining me today. Okay, thank you. See you soon in rehearsal. Yes. Can't wait. You've been listening to Dirty Feet. I'm Allison Elizabeth Burns. Music for Dirty Feet by Tristan Henry. Special thanks to Paula Flalo for ongoing support and guidance. And to past contributors for amassing an almost 200-episode archive, available at dirtyfeetpodcast.com. Learn more about me at allisoneb.com. This episode was created thanks to my patrons. To support the show and my other initiatives, visit patreon.com slash Dance.